0: Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Hello, thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich. It's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agriculture. This show is a proud part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network, so for other interesting shows related to agriculture, visit farmruralag.com. I have an exciting announcement for, for anyone who's followed this show for a long time, you know I have actually held off from selling ads to the show. Sure, sure, I could probably sell ads for any number of different services and products and all that stuff, but the idea of kind of filling the airwaves with a bunch of ads just has not appealed to me. However, what, what does appeal to me is the idea of a strategic partnership. So somebody, a company whose values really align with my values and also specifically uh, for the values of this next series we're doing, Sustainability at Scale. So uh, a few months ago, I put out some feelers of if there would be any company that would be interested in partnering with me on the series. And that's what we're going to do. So this series, Sustainability at Scale, is actually sponsored by the company um, that was started by one of our former guests. You'll remember from episode 19, Pam Marone in Marone Bio Innovations. They have decided to partner with me to bring you this series, Sustainability at Scale. And it's more than just ads. It's a strategic partnership that includes um, working together to find interesting stories and guests and also to distribute this content once it's done. So I couldn't be more excited about that. I I really believe that their values uh, align with this sustainability at scale concept, and and it's a great partner to have on this journey. So uh, please enjoy this series on sustainability at scale brought to you by Marone Bio Innovations. And I want to tell you a little bit more about that. You may or may not have heard about Marone's bio with bite. Marone Bio Innovations offers modern crop pest protection for the modern organic and conventional production systems. To be sure every grower using their products realizes the best possible return on investment, Marone invests time and resources to thoroughly test and demonstrate the efficacy of those new state-of-the-art products with serious trial data to back it up. You can see more and connect directly with Marone by visiting them at www.maronebio.com. That's M-A-R-R-O-N-E-B-I-O-B-I-O dot I am very pleased to have their support on this show and then also the the blog that corresponds with it. So if you haven't already checked it out, that's at futureofag.com because every one of these interviews has some sort of blog reflection piece where we go a little bit deeper into one aspect of the interview. And there are several aspects of this interview today that we could go deeper into. This is going to be kind of an agronomy lesson for uh, those of us who may not farm full time and have some preconceived notions about how farming is done on a large scale. I think this is a fantastic interview especially to help kick off this series on sustainability because we're going right to a farmer who is kind of staring down some preconceived notions in the face and really questioning some assumptions about what might and might not work on his farm for example many might think that you know manure as a fertilizer is great if you're doing backyard gardening or small permaculture but it can't happen on a large scale well Jason Mock, our guest here today, will show you exactly how he is using manure as nutrient management on his farm. In fact, he brings up a really interesting point that nutrient management and the problem of kind of supply and demand when it comes to nutrients, be it manure, food waste or whatever. There's always this imbalance between where all the supply is and where the demand is, and it's hard to transport it. He thinks that whole idea is ripe for the sharing economy that there should be sort of a sharing economy for nutrient management. And we get into that just a little bit, but I think that's an interesting idea for you entrepreneurs out there to listen to. Then we get into more of his uh, production system, which he has some fantastic content. Make sure you're following it on Twitter about how he chooses to look at kind of his crop ecology, his soil health, and the actual practices he's using. So I really enjoyed this. We get into obviously the the manure piece and and nutrient management, but also into intercropping, how he intercrops his uh, beans and his wheat. And it's just really a fascinating guy and a fascinating interview. Enjoy this interview with Jason Vaughn.
1: In our area, probably 70 to 80% of the ground that's farmed isn't farmed by the person that owns it. Uh, so when you talk specifically about manure distribution, the idea of applying manure to rented ground uh, is kind of taboo because, um, as you know, we get these little cycles where commodity prices go up, and let's say you've got ground relatively high rented it makes a lot more sense to give that ground up and then milk the the manure if you will so it's really hard to come up with a system that that's not going to be have problems down the road so uh, in our uh, situation we've got a lot of own ground around our barns but there comes a point where our scale gets so big that we've applied the same ground four or five times and and levels start going up so we're starting to look at different options uh, in that regard.
0: So are you saying that if if I if I'm a farmer And I rent the land that I'm farming on, and I have access to manure, which has valuable nutrients, um, but I also own some other land. I'm going to use it on the the land I own because there's no guarantee that I'll reap the benefits down the road on my rented ground.
1: Exactly.
0: So, right? Exactly.
1: So. Um, yeah, I mean, if say like chicken litter, it, we're not talking about pig manure. Chicken litter is uh, has some controversy of smell. It's fantastic for uh, soils, not high in organic matter, but it takes three, four, five years to really get the value of that investment, which now has been uh, people seeing the value. It's more expensive than fertilizer. Uh, but if somebody could apply it and get the neighbors mad at them and then they lose it and a new guy comes in, he can get the benefits, but he didn't get all the bad PR, if you will.
0: Hmm. Have you found a solution for that problem? I mean, is it getting the landowner involved? Um, what, What do you think should happen there?
1: Well, I, I look at it more from an agronomic perspective that you don't get money in the mail for nutrients that are way above the levels that they need to be. Um, but there becomes a, you know, I'm fresh in my mind. We just had a family farm trying to get a new site uh, just in the last week. We had a meeting and, and, and I didn't know how much uh that idea is opposed until we had this meeting. It just got a little bit heated and um these, these can find animals as, as people do these internet searches, they, they see the worst case scenarios. So it's really just driving wedges in people's mind, this huge spectrum of animal agriculture. They they think they all need to be out in pastures. But the reality is when you get into areas where ground goes for seven, ten, eleven thousand dollars, we can't let them frolic in the land on a million dollars worth of land.
0: Hard to get a good return on investment that way.
1: Exactly. Um, so we've come a long way. Uh, just in, we built our first barn 21 years ago. Uh, they had curtain ventilations. Now we run air through them. Every facet of the barn has been improved. Everything's bottled up. Uh, and the problem is the distribution problem. We are as we've gotten 25,000 pigs a year now. It takes several thousand acres to feed those pigs. But it's not getting distributed on those same couple thousand acres that it came from. So you're getting a net increase uh, nutrients that are over the top where it really needs So Needs shared.
0: <laughs> and what are most animal agriculture producers? So I'm, I'm saying pork, poultry, those are probably the two most confined, I, I would guess. But even feedlot, uh-huh. I mean, what are they do, doing with the manure?
1: Most of them are trying to use it themselves. Um, what has happened politically is there's counties where it's green light, where you can just keep on building barns after barns after barns, and they're heavily regulated on phosphorus levels, and they have to ship it out. Now, as um, this has hit the market and people have seen the value, and it's more coveted, the value has went up. So logistically, because it's getting more value, uh, some of these poultry litter is getting moved physically 60 to 100 miles from the site and being used well. The big difference in the manure is it's 90% water it's heavy so logistically that's impossible uh to do uh and make it feasible so what i've been on my cone farm is the idea of, of since we have ambient levels uh in our soil why not put significantly less uh, manure but band it more so it immediately gets uptake by the crops and then you, after some observation, I see how plants uh, react to that. And the the thing that I'm really fascinated with is this idea of, of wheat multiplication and kind of the stuff that we can do with that.
0: Okay, I want to get back to wheat multiplication because you'll have to explain to everybody wh- what fascinates you about that or what that's all about. But I, I want to just drill in on this manure thing. So you're saying that poultry, uh, poultry manure has a lower moisture content than hog manure, so you're paying to move less water. It can go a little further, right? Okay. And then what you're talking about is like a precision application of, of hog manure to make the manure you have go further as far as like on more of your crop. Uh, How do you, how do you, what's the, walk us through the difference. What's the difference between just kind of like spreading it uh, like we used to. And then actually uh, you mentioned putting it in right when you need it, where you need it.
1: Okay, so what we used to do is basically just put it in a tank and dump it out on top of the ground whenever we needed to, whether it's frozen or whatever. And we went to a tank, and now most people are in a drag line system, which is absolutely phenomenal in its efficiency. Uh, basically, a guy shows up with a 600 horsepower cat. And he's continuously pumping manure at a rate of somewhere 1,500 gallons per minute out to the field to an applicator that may be 30 or 40 foot wide, and you're applying it based on the season. A lot of folks are putting between four to 7,000 gallons in the fall maybe a little bit less in the spring. Super efficient. The problem that happened is uh, the hoses only go so far. Eventually, you run into a woods or a heavy road or there's something that's going to block you from going in that direction. So you start making a radius of the ground that you own within two miles. Maybe you're restricted to, say, a thousand acres. Eventually, when you have enough barns, that thousand acres just continuously keeps going. Um, so a lot. I've talked to a lot of people that says their uh, their tank sales are going up. People are putting it in semi trucks, getting on the road far away. Uh, but the idea of lower application. Sometimes is isn't really desirable. People just want to build soil up so they don't have to come back to that spot. So I'm kind of going against the uh, best management or the common thought in that aspect.
0: In your area, are there far- farmers paying for manure?
1: Uh, a lot of people are doing it with poultry manure, but not pig manure.
0: Just because of the water?
1: Because of the water. In our county, we're one of two uh, bigger growers of pigs. Uh, so that's uh, not real common around me. Now, I was 30 or 40 miles away. I still haven't heard anybody really sharing
0: it. And you've mentioned, you know, you you got a distribution problem, right? You've got all this manure and you've got all this cropland needing nutrients. And so how do you distribute it? And I know you've had at least one video talking about kind of like the sharing economy and how that's solved distribution type problems. How might that be used in a situation like this?
1: I don't think if there's I don't think there's one subject that's more compatible with the sharing economy. Um, so I'm a amateur ag economist, if you will, my marketing degree. And you know, if you're walking across a desert and you are thirsty as heck, you would do anything for a drink of water. Now, if you were swimming on Lake Michigan, its value is much less. So what has happened has manifested over the years is folks have some anemic soils that they have to spend nearly all their margins at the fertilizer company. And that product is shipped all over the world, five middlemen, And it's basically going to be priced wherever commodities are. You know, a man is only as faithful as his option. And then you have all these centralized manure places, uh, and they've built their soils up. So to them, added manure is just going to require more lines. It's going to require more equipment to move. Uh, There's there's not as much benefit. Now, it's still good for the soil, but it's not nearly has the same value if your soil has not had manure before. Hmm. So there's, a, there's been this big gap, a huge gap that, that gets bigger and bigger every year. And especially uh, when commodity prices are lower, um, there, when you're talking about a product that's basically free, the, the, the other aspect is we're not physically paying for our manure. Most of us don't own our pigs. Their feed is bought through Tyson or some other large integrator. So it's just sitting there with uh, no value in place how much more could it be if it was just managed better?
0: Is it possible just to dry the stuff down and only transport the, you know, the nutrient parts of it?
1: Kind of, but kind of not. So you have to be to a certain scale to be able to pencil out a, a digester, and that's usually around thirty thousand pig spaces. Wow! But the problem with a digester is you're basically burning the methane, you're burning the carbon, mm-hmm. and a lot of the value in manure is the carbon. So, yeah, I mean, people love the idea of of containing it and and turning it into electricity. And there's been a lot of uh, systems that are not only using manure, but they're using other industries to dump kind of like the yeast and the beer, if you will, into it and make it really tick and run. Uh, but to me, if I want to build my soil up, I want the carbon. Yeah. Uh, the carbon is where the actual the energy is, and it's not so much the, the, the MP and K.
0: You're an agronomist. and I know you said you're kind of amateur ag economist, but but primarily an agronomist and you put out some just fantastic content on Twitter mainly is a lot of videos about um, how you are looking at soil health and crop health and you're really committed to sustainability. And so can you talk us through your model and how it might be different from a lot of other farmers?
1: Well, first and foremost, as far as the cropping system, my background, I, when I got out of school, I was in sales a couple of years, and, I, and then I started a landscape contracting company where I basically took care of a lot of acres of turf and, and the beds and, and basically anything outside. And uh, is this, this is going to sound really primitive, but I noticed when I showed up for the first time, where the dog took a dump, the grass was a foot tall.
0: <laughs> <And> that, was, <laughs> yeah.
1: that was energy. And, and, and I, I also have a golf course at my house and I'm kind of a turf door and, uh, always been fascinated with this plant flex deal. Uh, you, you go out and you look at Oak trees, you look at a forest, nature isn't meant to be, uh, captured with sun only a fraction of the year in a straight line. So my mentality is uh, we're not really capturing the value of the nitrogen and manure because it, it, it's it gone in a hurry. Uh, Brian Hefty says the smell of manure uh, or smell of stink isn't smell of money. It's smell of lost money, and nothing can be more than the truth. Our county let, or makes us bury that manure. We can't surface apply it. So uh, basically everything I just said, what we're doing is applying manure in wide rows at much lower rates and planting wheat simultaneously. And we kind of got the cause and effect chain of events. All of this chaos makes perfect sense. It's kind of, everything kind of works in a system. So the, the wheat multiplies, uh, it, it fans out. We plant soybeans in between the wheat and it grows at the same time for a period of about a hundred days. The wheat heads turn into this enormous half circle of wheat heads Uh, we can run the draper head in our latitude about 18 inches high take in the wheat heads with the combine and then we've got a field of soybeans and reproduction that have a very high yield potential Uh, but the economics is we're using manure as our sole fertilizer for the wheat we're using a hugely reduced amount of seed for both crops so, our cost of production is significantly less than using commercial fertilizer and the seed to be able to blanket the whole field in two different seasons. Uh, so in a rotation, we get the uh, we get more photosynthesis, we get more liquid carbon into the soil, so you got the carbon from exuding from the pig, you got the carbon exuding from the roots and it all gets the microbiology going, which is actually what feeds the crops. It's not the rock candy fertilizer. It's the microbiology converting that over to the plants. So um, at the end of the day, we can just uh, apply manure across exponentially more acres, and and make a lot more acres better.
0: The farmers are nodding their head and, and following every word you said. Some of the non-farmers are probably uh, got a little bit lost in there. So so let's break this down. In in the uh, <laughs> okay in in the late fall, you plant wheat, right?
1: Yes. Yes. And I'm following corn. Uh, it's status quo to follow soybeans. Uh, corn has a high carbon to nitrogen ratio. So it really kind of muffles and mutes growth, because uh, you got to chew up all that uh, residue. But, uh, when I locally place the manure that has the readily available nitrogen, it kind of overtakes that carbon so I can get speed growth. So I can actually plant it about a month later than most people plant wheat because of this.
0: Okay. So you har- you harvest your corn and then, uh, and then, so you've got stubble in the cornfield, and I'm just trying to, you know, take yep. this back to the most basic form. Uh, you got stubble in the cornfield. Do you plow that under?
1: Uh, not not necessarily. Um, for this design, I did till the soil to get some more uh, fluid soil for my design. I'd like to be able to just no till it mm-hmm. uh, in between the corn. I would like to have cover crops. Uh, to have a bigger plant, to because we're starting from seed with the wheat, there's going to be some ammonium that maybe escapes before the, the wheat can really capture. So I'd like to have something else growing. Uh, but we could go either way there.
0: Okay. And then how long how long after you've harvested the corn uh, do you plant the wheat seed?
1: Uh, probably immediately. Immediately. Um, okay. We like we'd like for the corn to stay in the field and dry. The Drier that we can get it, the less we got to cook it uh but uh, most what we'd like to do is be coming in right at during harvest and and just start planting wheat start injecting manure at the same time
0: right so you let the yeah you let the corn dry down in the field so you don't have to pay to dry it out so that it stores Mm -hmm. Um, and then you plant Mm -hmm. the wheat and um and for, for those who have never farmed wheat or seen the process from the time you plant the wheat when does the the Blades of, of grass, you, I guess you could say, when does the wheat actually start popping up out of the ground, germinated?
1: Depends on the temperature, but ideally you start seeing green in 7 to 10 days.
0: Mm-hmm. And then it freezes and it snows, and that little wheat is pretty amazing, and it withstands all of the elements of the Midwest winter.
1: Exactly, and it, it, it some years it might be actively growing past Christmas. In some years, you know how crazy these winters are. Sometimes it gets 74 degrees in January. It'll grow a little bit. Um, so you're, you're, I call it forward progress. You know, if, you, if you're if you playing football and you're running back, makes four yards and gets tackled and goes back six, they spot the ball where he gained the four, and that's kind of what Wheat's doing is just inching out each GDU throughout the cold part of the year.
0: What's GDU?
1: A growing degree unit. You know.
0: Okay. And uh, so it goes dormant when it needs to go dormant to survive. What are you doing with all that poop through the winter?
1: Well, ideally, it's all out in the, in the fall. Our, our barns are nine foot deep. It's capable to go an entire year. Uh, but we'll, we'll usually apply manure ahead of right ahead of corn. And then this is kind of my new option for fall manure application.
0: Great. And then, uh, so the wheat starts growing again about, you know, when it starts to warm up this time of year, whatnot. Um, I have watched Mm -hmm. videos of you advocating for planting soybeans in March, even if you think it's going to freeze again. So, so explain that to us.
1: Well, the only thing that's relevant, that's the way my mind works, the only thing is relevant is when the soybean comes up, the cotyledon is actually the old yellow soybean, but it's turned green and succulent. And then you get this little first fluffy leaf out. That's the growing point in soybeans. Corn it has to be a V5. Um, so to that point, the ground can be froze. It can do whatever, and it won't kill that plant. Uh, But the way that this system works, why it's uh, safer, it's kind of like a hyena in the Serengeti when a lion's chasing you. They're in packs, and we kind of protect that soybean with the wheat foliage. So we'll plant it here when it's cold. By the time we we accrue enough heat for that soybean to rise up and come out and that growing point to emerge, the wheat is growing at the same time. It's actually growing faster than normal because it has locally placed manure underneath it. So that wheat will go from being, say, six inches tall to being uh, 15 inches tall in that time. It'll grow side to side. It'll grow vertically. And the ground is warmed into the 50s. So we're kind of bottling that heat. We might be at 25 degrees up two meters, which is the number that's on your telephone when it says the temperature. But the actual temperature close to the soybean will be warmer because of the circumstances. So... We can kind of hedge our risk quite a bit there. And, and the reason why we want to go so early is, is, is just what I said. It's racing for sunlight with the weed at the same time. So we widen the rows to get more solar angles down to them soybeans, but we want that soybean to get up and growing so it can intercept sunlight along with the wheat. And uh, okay. like the reason I call this constant canopy in the fall, we're canopied more with the cover crops and the weed. And in the spring, we get the canopy much quicker with the combination of the weed and the the soybeans. So when we use products like these new technology, dicamba resistant soybeans or the Enlist coming out, we can treat our herbicides similar to corn. Corn, we can spray it early and the corn canopies and it kind of fends for itself against uh, against weeds. We get the same effect, the wheat and the soybeans canopy about two months quicker than a normal field of soybeans. So we can use a much reduced rate of herbicide, get the kill and then the canopy backs up the stop.
0: Cool. And then the wheat spreading, is that what you were talking about? What, what's, what gets you so excited about this like, concept of wheat spreading? And maybe explain that to
1: us. Well, it's free. That's, that's what's cool. So everything is, is context. So when you supply wheat with more nitrogen, uh, it senses a, a thing to uh, tiller or multiply. The same thing happens somewhat with corn. And as each leaf intercepts more sunlight, the same thing happens. And wheat has 200 some days of growth compared to your summer annuals, or around 100. So, what can actually happen is is one wheat seed can turn 15, 20, 30. Up to, I saw a one seed produce 64 heads last year, had a corn seed produce 31 heads. Uh, It's all a function of how much sunlight capture happens with each individual plant. Uh, So economically, if I only have to plant one-sixth or one-eighth of the wheat seed, then I only have to cut a check for one-sixth or one-eighth of the wheat seed. So I'm spending about $12 an acre compared to 80 or 90 in my seeding. Uh, And then when I'm just using the the manure instead of uh, potash, map, nitrogen, AMS, all these commercial products, it's just manure. Um, so it's just the cost of the logistics. And that's why the location is so important. So, uh, And then the same thing goes on the soybeans, a, a longer life, lower seeding population. So the, the simple answer is it's free. But th- the other part of it, when we multiply, we completely change the plant architecture of the wheat in that row. Uh, instead of the wheat just growing up completely vertical for sunlight, it's in a massive bush, the tillers will start to compete with each other. So you get a taller uh, set of wheat heads in the very center of the row, but the tillers find their little niche to capture sunlight and you actually create a half a circle of wheat heads. So the footprint there at the, the ground surface somewhere around 14, 15 inches with a strip-toe machine. The side to side will have somewhere between 40, 45 inches wide of wheat head in a half circle. Pi, as you know, is pi r squared is 3.14. Half circle is 1.57 times 40 by 1.57. You get over 60 inches of a surface area of wheat head so you're actually capturing sunlight sideways so you're actually capturing sunlight in different days and different growth cycles and in different angles and it all adds up to just more sunlight capture which is natural in mother nature.
0: And so uh, you've got the wheat plant and wheat, wheat fields. Uh, we've all seen them, you know, it kind of looks like a field of grass. Do you just, yes. and then you're going to go in as that wheat's growing and plant these soybeans. Do you, do you like strip till, or, or do you just direct, direct seed them right in there?
1: Direct seed, direct seed. My wheat fields look more like a lavender field. They're just a hey, big circles. Yeah, you've but got some beautiful pictures online. I mean,
0: it looks uh, it, it looks unreal. I mean, with the soybeans growing in between the wheat. Um, well, one question I have is uh, just logistically, okay, so now you're to the point where your wheat's about ready to harvest. Your soybeans are, are growing well, but they're still growing, and you've mm-hmm. got to go in there and harvest your wheat. Um, does that take special equipment to somehow harvest wheat without harming the soybeans?
1: Not necessarily, it just takes a little forethought. So uh, this is my third year. The first two years was just learning the agronomy. This year, I've thought more about schematics. So that's why we're in wider rows in the 60 inches, and the wheat is in a thicker row, 16 inches wide. So most combines, class six to class nine, are 120-inch wheelbase. So the tires will drive directly over the old wheat, and the draper head can be set up uh, 18, 20 inches high and will capture 95 to 98% of the wheat heads without harming the soybeans okay so it's just a game of timing and growth rates
0: yeah it it seems like Like you are feeling
1: home kind of yeah it (laughs) it kind
0: of is you're you're just kind of like finding loopholes in 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 all these all the growing processes uh going back to a couple things you said so number one you said you know wheats 200 days versus like a corner beans which may be 100 days um you know if 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 the beans need 100 days Uh, what's the big deal with getting them planted early? If they're going to get their 100 days no matter what, what's the difference there?
1: That is the best question anyone has ever asked me. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Corn works on GDUs. No matter how cold it gets, it'll just keep growing slowly. Beans are a short-day crop. If you go to Dow AgriScience or something like that, they, the beans won't ever die if they're lit. So they have to actually shade the greenhouse to get them to mature. So it doesn't matter if you plant a bean in March or July, when the days start getting shorter, it goes, oh crap, and starts maturing. So when you plant it later, the the window of reproduction, the window of where the farmer makes money, gets extremely compact. So the soybean uh doesn't think it can support as many babies in its minivan, if you will, and it puts a lot uh, less nodes, less seed size. So that's the, uh, the point of planting them ultra early. First off, it's not really relevant to get a lot of plants out there because they, they'll branch and bush and compensate and eventually uh, catch all the light that's coming down. Uh, but we get a lot more nodes, which is kind of the points of where pods are. Uh, but on, if we talk outside of just the specific planting date, there's some really cool things that happen in this context that you can't do in a tabletop monocrop situation. Uh, when you have a lot of manure, it it's better for hay beans than grain beans. They really want to get real vegetative and grow and lean and lodge. And this allows, when we take that wheat heads out of the way, the wheat occupied a specific uh, spot in the field. And the soybeans are now, they have pods, but they can encroach and grow side to side instead of vertically. And this is magical because beans, when they're in a field, they are constantly growing vertically and the nodes get further and further apart to get away from all their brothers. (laughs) We're allowing the beans to grow side to side and that brings energy back to these lower nodes and these soybeans that were relay had anywhere from 22 to 25 nodes in my monocrop field. And especially in a plot where I'm trying to break the yield barriers, I've got 16. And on the lower nodes, it starts shedding pods. Photosynthesis doesn't really translocate in the plant real well. So the lower nodes really shut down or they start dropping pods later on. This bean is continuously marinated in sunshine side to side. so. In a way, having the residue kind of fights weeds and lets some sun infiltrate. It's just a, it's just a beautiful thing if you're a, a dorky agronomist seeing it happen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then and that makes sense. And so then you you harvest all these soybeans in the fall. So you've harvested the the wheat in the in the summer while the beans are growing, and then you harvest the soybeans in the fall. And then do you let your ground go fallow without a crop until you would plant? corn on it maybe the next spring and start the process you can do whatever
1: you yeah you can do whatever you want uh there's normally going to be some uh uh volunteer wheat you know if you don't harvest it all um you're going to have some some grassy wheat in there and kind of let it do its thing and then and then we'll go to corn um another beautiful thing here is 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 people you know we're integrating a cover and a cash crop, but the wheat is really similar to rye in that they have living roots. Uh, when, you, when you're actually in the winter and it's in the dead of winter, the soil is actually warm a foot or two deep. So we're getting a little root growth. We're getting we're feeding the microbes more throughout the entire year instead of starving it for 250 days and giving it some 100 days. So it really unlocks some fertility. So when we do do go to corn, we've seen a significant yield increase without the use of any manure or commercial fertilizer, because our microbial action are alive and well. So there's a lot of rotational benefits to that. Um, so, so there you go. <laughs>
0: it's a really unique process. I mean, there's not a lot of people out there at least talking about doing this. And maybe it's more common than I realize, But You put out a ton of interesting information about all this stuff, and I've really enjoyed kind of nerding out on a lot of it. I'm sure by putting yourself out there, I know um, there are people who will be naysayers and say that will never work for me. But what are the number, you know, the top reasons why people don't want to do a, a similar program to what you're doing?
1: Well, I, I made a little periscope today about questioning the givens. And, you know, in geometry you had the, the, the givens and the proof, and I really don't remember much more than that. But the, the, the problem with farmers is they take so much weight in the specific stats that people hammer in their heads, and they think that it'll be a disaster if they don't plant their wheat precisely at an inch and a half, or if they don't plant their beans in late April, or they don't do this or that. And if you start to say, you know, screw it, we're just going to try this. And if it's not 100%, it works well in the system. And that's kind of the methodology here. I'm planting wheat with a manure spreader, which has never been done. And yeah, it's not maybe as pretty initially as... Uh, it's done with a, a drill. But I know what the wheat's going to do later on as far as plant multiplication and its location of manure and add efficiency. So to me, that outweighs it. I know that planting soybeans in March probably won't get 100% stand, but I know it's a longer time in reproduction. I know that I'll get the canopy quicker than I can cut my herbicide rate. So when you start looking at spectrums instead of best management practices and you start uh, learning like how things interact you know it takes several years when you start throwing in these variables that you can't quite quantify like manure but you just know that it works Uh, so maybe some type a people that freaks them out but Uh, I'm constantly trying some really things that maybe not work just to kind of learn the spectrum. Does that make much sense? I think that holds people back more than anything. Yeah. And then maybe one thing I want to touch on just, just the fear of being a hypocrite, you know, uh, people get in these camps of whether, you know, I'm a true soil health or, or them soil health people are crazy or (laughs) I work at the co-op and it's all about synthetics. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm not afraid to kind of, I'm not afraid to try to grow 400 bushel corn and, and stub my head and really set goals and come up short or, or see what happens here. And then have other goals that might be on the completely other end of the spectrum to kind of learn how we can utilize free things like sunshine, uh, microbiology, and that kind of stuff. And maybe you kind of integrate the two things because at the end of the day, some things when you're really worried about jumping out of your camp are holding you back financially a little bit. So, yeah, if I'm not afraid to call me a hypocrite, you know, but we're going to try it all.
0: On a per acre basis, it sounds like you're doing a lot to increase the yield like on a per plant basis for soybeans. but because you got the wheat Mm -hmm. in there you know your density is is probably a lot different so what type of yield are you giving up or you know willing to forego um per acre by doing this
1: well i think there's a string tied to it so you take more wheat you're gonna hurt your beans you give it less sun less water last year we were average 75 we had 62 beans I think going wider, and I've got it on some fantastic soil this year. Uh, we're going to hedge that lower on the wheat, try to shoot for a 60 to 70 range. But our cost of production is significantly less with this new uh, manure injection site where it's less manure, but it's localized. So I am I have the lofty goal. I When I say this, I probably... Don't really believe it'll happen, but I want to have hundred bushel soybeans this year. If I'm at 82, I'm going to be pretty happy, but when you look at the economics, if we can grow wheat for literally nothing, it's all contribution margin. And the soybeans are the higher price commodity. So when you go back to that string theory, if we give up 20 bushel a wheat to give 20 bushel of beans, we're at a two to one advantage on the commodity price. So re- I'm really focusing on a, about a 60 bushel wheat and a 70 bushel beans, which would bring us over a thousand dollars revenue, even with our kind of lower commodity prices right
0: now. It sounds really interesting. It sounds great, really. And how are you monitoring the, in, in I, I don't just mean you, in general, how are farmers evaluating their soil quality, soil health, however you want to put it, uh, on a year-to-year basis?
1: You've heard some folks bearing underwear. I think that's a great visual thing of how much uh, life you have. Um, there's all kinds of things uh, under a microscope you can look for but uh, your soil just starts functioning much better. Uh, you know, you call it the ground pounders, but eventually if you work it so much and you take all the pore space out of it, when it rains uh, half an inch, you'll have ponds everywhere. Infiltration is, is a huge uh, thing that, that's going to help yield as far as an average across your farm more than anything. Uh, but there's so many things that happen if you keep leaves grabbing solar energy and put that in the roots and feed your your soil long term it's have you let me ask you just one question have you ever seen a squirrel pulling a fertilizer spreader with its tail i have not exactly so how the hell did the forest you know you you i'm saying i do we could pretty much close the loop of manure and cover crops Pretty much solving all of our problems, uh, but honestly, the problem is we're not sharing and we're probably not letting them out enough. But yeah, and the
0: under the underwear reference is if you have a lot of microbial activity in your soil and you buried underwear in there, it'd be a lot more uh, broken down, I guess, than they would if you didn't have microbial activity. Is that is that right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yes.
0: The underwear guys, I like that. You you did a video, um, kind of comparing Moneyball, the m- book and movie Billy Bean, uh, to to maybe the way farmers should look at things. Can can you can you recap on that?
1: Yes, yes. I think it goes back to my previous thought process where. We get, you know, it just drives me nuts. I'm I'm probably one of the dumbest farmers when it comes to technology. Like I just I just don't care. We're at a point where we're so far behind where I don't want to invest a half million dollars to get normal. So you go to all these meetings and they dissect and looked at every single thing you can think of. But the thing with Billy Bean, I remember I think he got David Justice on his team and he was like has been forty years old, but his on base percentage was like. 0.44 or something. It was incredible. And, his, and he just boiled everything down to if we get guys on base, then they'll get on base and push the next guy ahead and we'll score more runs than the other team. And they'd say, well, what about his fielding?" you know? Mm-hmm. But I think we can boil agronomic, everything in agronomy down to it's as simple as uh, getting more plants out there and capturing more sun. And you can't do it with one species. You have to use frost tolerant species. You have to use different cover crops. You can cover the earth if you, if you think about it a little bit and stage things and, and crimp them or, or tromp them with animals. There's all kinds of things we can do with a lot of the folks that are really farming for the cheap, cheap, and they don't—they go to night, go to bed at night with a lot, a lot less stress. It's not when they've got ten million dollars sitting in the shed that's all waxed up. It's when they have healthy soils and they have uh, uh, a lot of plants growing in there, and uh, you know, that's to me, that's that's true soil wealth, and I think that's where it's going to go to. So. It, it, it becomes pretty simple.
0: Well, you all need to be following Jason on Twitter if you're not. If if for no other reason than his random thoughts of the day that he does via Periscope, uh, it's Jason Mock one on Twitter. That's at Jason, and it's Mock, M-A-U-C-K, and then the number one. Right, Jason? Yep. Hey, thank you so much for this. This has been a great conversation.
1: <laughs> thank you. I need a drink of water. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hey, hope you enjoyed that interview with Jason Mock. I really loved uh, every piece of that. You'll notice that most of my my uh, shows stay within 40 minutes. This one went a little bit long because I just could not cut anything out of there. The nutrient management stuff I found fascinating, as well as his whole intercropping system and his ability to share how he does things and why he does things. A lot of those concepts from, from intercropping to using manure are usually associated only with small scale agriculture, uh, which there's nothing wrong with that, but I love the story of hearing how it can be done on a large scale. If you'd like to know more about that, everything from why he plants his soybeans as early as he does and how exactly he looks at some of these concepts, make sure you're following him on Twitter. Hey, check out our uh, series sponsor, Marone Bio Innovations at maronebio.com. Thanks so much. I'm really excited for this series. Uh, Next episode is episode 100. I have a really interesting uh, startup founder uh, on the show that I think you're going to enjoy quite a bit. So uh, stay tuned for episode 100 next week thank you for listening to the future of agriculture podcast with tim hammerich visit futureofag.com that's future of A-G, today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week